So Shabbat Shalom and welcome to Simchat Yisrael. So for those of you who are new here or unfamiliar with our congregation, if Simchat was like the Power Rangers, where like all these different people come together to make like this giant megazord, uh, Rabbi Tony would be like Zordon. He's like the, the guy who gathers the rangers together to fight evil. And I would be like that little robot that hangs out at the watchtower and just completely loses his mind every time a monster attacks Earth. So, you know, I've really written myself into a corner with these jokes now. Uh, They've kind of become my catchphrase, and it'd be weird if I didn't do them before my sermon, but I'm severely running out of good jokes to make. So I am accepting submissions right now. Send in your version of, if Rabbi Tony is X, then Jared is Y joke, and the best one will appear at the beginning of my next sermon. So, all right, now that I've gotten the, the really important stuff out of the way, I thought we could turn our attention to this week's Parsha, Naso. So we are officially finished with the book of Leviticus in the weekly reading cycle, and we have moved on to numbers. So this week's parsha covers quite a variety of different subjects, ranging from the division of duties amongst uh, different families of the Kohanim, to the specifics of taking a Nazarite vow, to one of the most famous blessings in the Torah, the Aaronic benediction, So that we say every week. So every week I try to do a lot of reading about the parsha. And I must have read like 20 to 30 different essays on the, all the topics, but there was one subject covered in Nassau that became conspicuous by its absence. You know, there were 10 essays on Nazarites, 10 essays on the benediction, a dozen essays on the gifts that the tribes bring before God, but I couldn't find a single written word on this one particular subject. And I think it's because people are actively avoiding talking about it because it's making them uncomfortable. Well, I love making people uncomfortable, so I'm going to go out go where few dare tread. So today, we're going to look at Numbers chapter 5, the Sota Jealousy Ritual. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to, chapters, to Numbers chapter 11. I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 5, verse 11, through the end of the chapter. So, a few weeks ago, I preached on the blasphemer in the book of Leviticus, And they called it the most uncomfortable story in Torah. I take that back. This, this is the most uncomfortable story in Torah. If you have even a single feminist bone in your body, this passage just makes your blood boil. You know, my my reading up on the subject, I found this passage has caused people, especially women, to lose their faith in God and the Bible. When people accuse the Bible of hating and oppressing women, this is one of the passages that they use as evidence. So if you're not familiar with the passage, it basically goes like this. A man becomes suspicious that his wife has been cheating on him with another man. He has no proof that his wife's been unfaithful. All he has to go on are his feelings of jealousy. So the husband then publicly accuses her of adultery and brings her to a temple to perform a ritual to prove her guilt. The woman is brought before the priest and has her hair uncovered and loosened. Not a big deal in our society, but in communities where, being, where your hair, keeping your hair covered is a sign of modesty, this is the equivalent of being stripped naked. The husband makes an offering to God, and then what almost seems like a magic spell happens. The priest fills a bowl full of holy water, then mixes in dirt from the temple floor into it. The priest then writes on a parchment that if the woman has been unfaithful, then God will curse her. He will cause her belly to become swollen and her insides to rot. 
the woman must agree to this curse. And then the priest mixes the parchment into the dirty water. And then the woman has to drink the foul concoction. If the woman is guilty of adultery, then immediately the waters will become bitter inside of her and cause her to rot from the inside out. If she's pregnant with another man's child, the child will die, and she will be accursed among her people for as long as she lives, which is not likely going to be very long. The woman will bear her guilt, but the husband will be free of guilt, as it says. Pretty nasty stuff, huh? I can see why this subject is distasteful to a lot of people. So I'm reading this stuff, and even apart from the hideous death it promises to unfaithful woman, it just seems so humiliating. You know, it reminded me a lot of the book, The Scarlet Letter, where Hester Prynne is found guilty of having a child out of wedlock and is forced to parade through the town with an A for adulteress embroidered on her clothing, has a stand in public, getting, getting jeered at by the crowd. You know, sex is such a private matter. And to have something so personal put on public trial, it's just, just horrible. And then the Sota ritual itself. There's something that seems so barbaric and backwards about it. You know, it calls to mind the medieval trials by ordeal. In these trials, the accused would be forced to do dangerous and painful things, like walk on across a bed of flaming coals, or reach their hand into boiling water, or hold a red-hot stone in their hand. The idea was that if he was innocent, then God would cause a miracle to happen, and he would be unharmed. So you can guess how these trials usually went. You know, my favorite story is about the cold water trial. During witch hunts, the accused were bound hand and foot and thrown into a pond. If they floated, and, and you know, most, most people float. You know? That means they were so evil that the water itself rejected them. And then they were dragged back to land and burnt as a witch. If they sank, that meant they were innocent. But then they already drowned by then. So, you know, there's that. So just backwards and stupid and barbaric, you know. Is this what the Bible teaches? To brutalize the weak? to treat our wives like property, to resort to superstition and mysticism when dealing out justice? Well, that's what the knee-jerk reaction is when you read something difficult like this. But is this what's really going on here? Is the story of oppression and cruelty we just wove the story that the Torah is trying to tell us? Or is there something deeper going on here? So today, I want to take a closer look at this jealousy ritual and see if the Torah isn't telling us a much different story than it would seem at first glance. So like I said before, the Sotar ritual does almost sound like magic. It's complex and deeply symbolic, and it's, it's pretty hard for the modern reader to wrap their head around. So to make it a little easier, I'm going to create a contemporary hypothetical situation to illustrate you know, a situation where the Sotar ritual might be used. So this hypothetical case I'm going to make isn't just me using my imagination. It's based off of Talmudic teachings on this passage in Numbers. The rabbis took great pains in specifying the exact circumstances under which a sotar ritual could be performed. So remember when I said earlier that a husband could make his wife perform it just because he's jealous? That's not exactly true. Certain circumstances have to be met before a husband is allowed to make such a serious accusation against his wife. So let's get to the scenario. This is Sarah. She is married to Lenny. They have what up till now has been a pretty happy and successful marriage. But lately, things have been a little rough. 
Sarah works at a downtown office and has in recent months become quite friendly with one of her coworkers, Bob. Sarah and Bob eat lunch together every day, talk on the phone often, and have recently started to spend time together outside of work. Lenny isn't feeling good about this. He feels that Sarah and Bob's relationship is undermining the specialness and exclusivity of his own relationship with his wife. Lenny asks his rabbi what to do, and the rabbi tells him that Talmud states that he should confront his wife about his feelings and do so in the presence of two close, trusted friends so that there will be witnesses to the talk and to ensure that there are people to intervene in case things get heated. So Lenny takes the rabbi's advice, and in front of their friends Joe and Jane, asks Sarah not to be alone with Bob anymore. Sarah agrees that she won't see Bob anymore, and the issue seems like it's resolved. But a week later, Joe and Jane are out taking a walk, and what do they see but Sarah and Bob walking together? They follow them for a bit, and to their dismay, they see Sarah and Bob walk into a hotel together. So they feel obligated to go to Lenny and tell him what they witnessed. Lenny is distraught, and he asks them, are they sure? Did they actually see the adulterous act? Joe and Jane have to admit that they didn't actually witness any adulterous activity. All they saw was the opportunity for adultery. So once again, Lenny confronts his wife. He tells her what Joe and Jane saw. Sarah admits that, yes, she went into the hotel with Bob, but it was only to have lunch at their restaurant. She swears that she didn't do anything else with Bob, and she has been faithful to her husband. So Lenny and Sarah are at an impasse. Lenny has good reason to be jealous. Sarah continued her relationship with Bob even after her husband asked her to end it. Sarah insists that she's been faithful, but doesn't have anything other than her word to prove it. And at this point, her word doesn't mean that much to Lenny. What is this couple to do? So listen, this story happens every day in our world. If Lenny and Sarah are like many couples today, there are a few options that might play out. Now, Lenny and Sarah might not, want, might not want to disrupt their lives with a messy divorce, so they might continue on with their marriage, but harbor ill feelings and mistrust towards each other. They would sleep in separate bedrooms. They would cease to communicate with each other, and any lingering love they, they had would slowly fade away. Or maybe the anger and betrayal that Lenny feels over the situation will lead him to mistreat his wife. He might speak cruelly to her, or even seek out an affair of his own, to even the score. But since two wrongs don't, don't often make a right, rather than leveling the playing field, Lenny's wrongdoing would just drive the wedge deeper between himself and Sarah. Or maybe the two of them will just give up on the idea that two people could remain, could remain monogamous for their whole lives. They might just agree to turn a blind eye to each other's extramarital affairs and just come to accept that cheating and the unhappiness it brings is just part of their marriage. Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise that none of these alternatives are acceptable to God or the Torah. So Lenny and Sarah go back to their rabbi, and he tells them that there are only two possible actions at this point. There needs to be a solid resolution. Either they can decide to dissolve the marriage immediately, regardless of Sarah's guilt or innocence, or they can choose to reestablish a trusting relationship based on Lenny's acceptance of his wife's innocence. Lenny and Sarah love each other, and they don't want to split up. 
but how can Lainey trust Sarah now? She insists that she's innocent, but there's no way to prove what really went on what happened in the hotel. There's no way for Lainey to dispel his lingering doubts. Their marriage seems doomed. But then the rabbi suggests a solution. There was a witness to what happened in the hotel, he says. God! Sarah's innocence can only be attested to by God himself. How, they ask. So the rabbi tells them about the Soto ritual. So let's take a step back here and look at what we've learned so far. Far from being a case where an angry husband drags his unwilling wife's name through the mud and puts her on trial, the Soto ritual is only done in cases where both partners are seeking reconciliation and both of them want to establish a trusting relationship. The woman can't be forced to perform this ritual to prove her guilt. It's actually the opposite. The sotor is requested by the wife in order to prove her innocence. So let's get back to Lenny and Sarah. The couple go, I feel like I missed a couple things. There we go. The couple go to the temple and tell the priest what's going on. They go to the temple and not debate Din, you know, the house of law, because this isn't a legal matter. It's a spiritual one. The priest then instructs them on how to perform the Soto ritual, which is highly symbolic. The husband has to bring an offering for his wife to show that they are participating in a mutual effort towards reconciliation. When we read about the different kinds of offerings, I don't know if you do this, but I always kind of skim over the particulars of the offering because it's just it's boring. But, uh, but this time I paid attention. So the couple makes an offering of barley without the oil and incense. This is an unusual offering. Usually when you make an offering, it's with wheat, not barley, and it's accompanied by oil and incense. The symbolic meaning behind this offering is that we offer barley instead of wheat because barley is animal food. And marital infidelity is such a terrible sin that it lowers us to the level of animals when we commit it. Oil and incense are symbolic of the joy and the blessing that we get from sacrificing to God. In the Sota offering, there's no oil or incense because adultery brings no joy or blessing to anyone, including God. So next, the priest takes a clay jar and pours into it water and dust from the ground. But it can't just be any old water and dust. It has to be holy water from the sanctuary wash basin and dust from the sanctified earth on which the temple stands. The rabbis teach that the clay jar represents the human body, which was formed from the earth, and the holy earth and holy water poured into it represents the life-giving potential of our bodies. But it can't just be any water and earth. It has to be holy water and earth. The whole ritual is meant to remind us that sex and reproduction are meant to be holy, And when sex is misused in adultery and marital infidelity, the thing that was meant to bring blessing and joy instead turns bitter and becomes a curse. So, finally, the priest writes down the two possible consequences of the Sota test. If Sarah has been lying and she really was unfaithful to Lenny, then when she drinks the water, it will turn bitter inside her and cause all kinds of yucky stuff to happen. But if she's telling the truth and has been faithful... The water will not harm her. And in fact, she will be blessed with fertility and bear children. 
Sarah then has to agree to the terms of the test. Now, note that Sarah has to voluntarily agree to this. If she doesn't agree, then the whole thing becomes invalidated. It's important to remember that the SOTA test can't be forced on a woman against her will. She has to want to do it. So after Sarah agrees to the terms of the test, the priest takes the parchment and places it into the jar. The writing becomes dissolved into the water, and then it's the moment of truth. Sarah stands before the priest and has her hair uncovered and let loose over her shoulders. As I said before, this does seem to be unnecessarily humiliating. After all, Sarah may be completely innocent. Why should she have to do something degrading like this? But the rabbis argue that this isn't done as punishment. You know, if the goal of loosening her hair was to humiliate her, it would have happened in public where everyone could see her, like in that scarlet letter example I gave. Instead, she only loosens her hair once she's sequestered with her husband and the priest. The rabbis teach that the wife's hair is loosened not as a punishment, but as a symbolic representation of her vulnerability and being completely at the mercy of God. Right before she partakes in a test that may claim her life, she removes her head covering, the symbol of a married woman, and doing so symbolically removes herself from the protection of her husband. He can't help her now. She stands alone before God, and only the Holy One can judge her. So Sarah holds up the bowl to her lips and tilts it back. At that moment, Lenny realizes that this all has been a huge mistake. He realizes he doesn't care what Sarah Bayer may have not have done. She's the love of his life, and he can't imagine living without her. He doesn't need some crazy test to tell him that he wants to be with her forever. Lenny leaps to knock the bowl from Sarah's hands, but it's too late. She's already drunk the waters. Lenny stands back motionless, unable to even breathe as he waits to see what will happen to his wife. After a moment, Sarah grimaces and says, well, it tasted awful, but otherwise I feel pretty good. Lenny bursts into tears of relief and he rushes to embrace his wife. Sarah has passed the test. She has proven herself a faithful woman and the trust between her and her husband has been restored. So, what happened here? Is the Sota test magic? How does it work? You know, the more I think about it, the more I realize that Sarah, and pretty much any woman who would take the test, was never in any danger at all. The water that Sarah drinks, while dirty, is completely harmless by itself. Earlier, I compared the Sota test to a medieval trial by ordeal. That's actually a misnomer. In a trial by ordeal, like the ones I described, the defendant is presumed to be guilty. God would have to perform a miracle to prove his innocence. The Sota is actually the complete opposite of an ordeal. In the Sota, the wife is presumed to be innocent, and God would have to come down and perform a miracle in order to prove her guilty. At no point in the whole process is a woman ever forced to do anything against her will. According to Jewish law, if Lenny demanded the test, but Sarah didn't want to do it, she always had the option to ask for a divorce instead. In fact, since there was no evidence that she committed adultery, the divorce would have been considered no fault, and Lenny would have to pay her alimony. The Sota test can only be done voluntarily, and if you think about it, only an innocent woman would agree to it. If Sarah had really been unfaithful, she almost certainly would have taken the option of divorce rather than risk the dire consequences of the test. 
Only a woman who still genuinely loves her husband and fervently wants to restore his trust in her would have the courage and the faith in God's justice to take the test. So Sarah and Lenny have been reunited, and as they leave the temple, the situation couldn't be any more different from the scarlet letter. When Sarah entered the temple, her reputation was in shambles. Friends and family and co-workers may have wondered if she was an unfaithful wife and thought less of her for it. But when she emerges from the temple, whole and unharmed, hand in hand with her husband, she is vindicated before the whole community. Both her reputation and her relationship with her husband have been restored. Soon after, according to God's promise, Sarah and Lenny conceived their first child and can continue on in their journey together. So, I love happy endings. So, as I come to an end here, I want to point out one more thing about the Sota test that is unique in all of Torah. The Sota is the only case of social law in all of Torah that God thinks is so important that he directly intervenes miraculously. In every other case, God tells us, rule amongst ourselves according to his laws. But when a marriage is threatened, God himself steps off of his throne and comes down to deal with it personally. The restoration of love and trust between a husband and wife is so important to God that he even allows his holy name to be erased for the sake of that restoration. When the priest places the parchment into the clay jar, the name of God he has written on it becomes blotted out by the waters. This is never allowed anywhere in Torah. It's like God saying, my name is holy, but your marriage and the love and trust and commitment that it represents is holy too. For the sake of your marriage, I will even allow my name to be blotted out if it means that the trust between you can be restored. God's involvement in the Sota test demonstrates the level of his presence in every marriage. The union between husband and wife and their faithfulness towards each other is a special object of God's attention. How much more should we value that relationship in turn? So Shabbat Shalom, everyone.